In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars, one oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my dubious co-host, Patrick Pister. <laughs> hey, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm a little nervous on the mic. It's been a while for us. Yeah. Our, your, our audience doesn't know because we release an episode uh, every week, but Patrick and I have taken a pretty long break. We, we have eaten through our reserves. <laughs> yeah. And so, Patrick, what episode is this? This is episode number 45. And we're not sitting here by ourselves talking, are we? No, we've got an excellent guest. We've got Blake Scott of Scott Energy with us. Blake, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Let's, it's actually Scott environmental services scott what i say no actually it is scott energy oh, technologies scott energy. we have operated that's a that's a nice segue into yeah. our name change I and i will be that. keeping this in because <laughs> i wasn't wrong <laughs> you were right no i really appreciate that um we have operated as scott environmental services in every state uh, excuse me in texas and oklahoma and every other state as scott environmental services international llc for years as a matter of fact, Scott Environmental Services owns the LLC. What we found that we were doing, though, was having to look at, from an operational perspective, books for things outside of Texas and Oklahoma operationally, and then the same thing for Texas and, and uh, Oklahoma. So we decided to consolidate all of our operations in the LLC, which is still owned by Inc., but at the same time change the name of the LLC to Scott Energy Technologies LLC, which more reflects what we do. Yeah. And so before we get to what you do, I want to know your backstory. Like, how did you get started in this crazy industry? <laughs> That's, it's a very, very interesting story. In 1994, my uh, family and I started actually looking at the oil field waste issues that were out there. And we started initially doing uh, historic spills as well as current spills. So like a saltwater spill or a hydrocarbon spill. And uh, even though we, we were successful at doing that, really you're waiting on some kind of issue to occur. And it kind of felt like being a buzzard on a fence. And, and right. We, we thought there's got to be other things that the oil field generates. You start to feel bad when you're crossing well, your fingers waiting for we an did. accident, an incident. To- <laughs> we, we did. You know, that, that's exactly right, Patrick. Uh, and so we started analyzing, uh, not us, but just from our search, looking at all of the different types of waste generated by the upstream. And we found that the largest solid waste stream was drilled cuttings. And so we started concentrating on on providing services for dealing with drilled cuttings. And we did Just that. to stop you there, Blake, most, yeah. of, our, most of our audience knows what, what cuttings are. Just give a quick little what, what cuttings are when you're drilling. Yeah, when you drill a well, clearly you have to displace the, the rock that you're drilling through. And so as that comes back to the surface being carried by the drilling fluid, then that's separated by solids control equipment. It is the, the rock cuttings and the associated fluid that you can't get off of the cuttings. Diamonds. <laughs> Diamonds, yeah. Yeah, what a wonderful story. <laughs> that, yeah, we had an interesting lunch conversation that we won't go into here. Um, all right, so you saw that there was a need for that. Um, and then, so what did y'all do? 
Well, initially, we started out doing uh, what we, what has been and still is being done traditionally in the oil field, such as uh, land spreading, burial, dilution burial, um, and then we would haul off to landfills. As we did that, though, clearly, as with any type of a competitive situation, we began to try to look for things that would differentiate us in the marketplace for our customers, the oil and gas companies. And so we began to research various technologies. We did that with the eye on making sure that we could always provide something that was the most environmentally beneficial to the industry. What we found was uh, stabilization and solidification technology, which has been used uh, historically a great deal by federal Superfund site contractors to deal with all types of contaminants, including uh, radioactive material. We took that material, or we took that technology, and realized that if we changed some of the uh, the admixtures and the the ways that we added the the material to cuttings, that we could also address civil engineering issues such as load applications, the amount of weight something could bear, uh, with minimal rutting. So from that from that goal, we wound up being able to create load-bearing structures like drilling pads and lease roads, and that's that's what we wound up offering, and that's really what we offer today. So are you telling me that you you were able to take something which is normally an environmental environmental risk, it's a waste, that people dispose of in all kinds of different ways, and you actually turn it into something that you build things with? Absolutely, and there's a lot of benefits to that because you don't have to you don't have to go out and purchase as many raw materials in the process of doing it. In other words, the oil and gas operator is actually generating something that has a real benefit to them if it's treated properly. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's just because you know forever. You know, the, the, when they built the pad, that's usually it was clay they'd haul in right from somewhere else. Um, there's a lot of costs involved, and especially if they're working place where they have to bring mats in, heavy equipment. I mean, it's just, and, but to actually generate your own working material from something that you're generating while you're drilling anyway, I mean, that's, that's incredible. But how do you handle the residues that are on the, the cuttings? Well, that's such a great question because the, the contaminants that are found in, in drill cuttings um, broadly can be categorized as salts, metals, and hydrocarbons. And, you know, you can clearly look at, at the hydrocarbon ranges of what hydrocarbons those are, as well as various types of metals. But the technology, the stabilization and solidification, or SS technology we use, basically has three main ways that you measure the success uh, from an environmental perspective of making sure that the, that the material you're dealing with is sequestered. The first being unconfined compressive strength. So we measure how strong the material is from an unconfined perspective. And then the next one being uh, hydraulic conductivity. That is just a measure of how easily water moves through something. So if you think about it, like concrete, like a monolith. We're creating a monolith. If a pad's 400 by 400, the monolith really does not allow water to penetrate through it. It goes around it. Well, if you have something that has a contaminant in it, but water can't go through it to pick it up, then the contaminant doesn't move out of it. So that's a, that's a very important measurement. And then the last measurement being leachability, which does measure if water does go through it, then what the concentration is of the contaminant that's in that water as it moves out of it is. So you, we have parameters for each of those three, these, uh, excuse me, we have characteristics for each of those three parameters. Yeah, it's funny, Patrick, you mentioned salt, and you know that I had a salt spill at my house, <laughs> and I'm doing some salt water remediation. Right. <laughs> it looks like, knock on wood, it's been successful. 
Um, and if you're listening, <laughs> I don't have a pipeline in my house. My water softened. The vent line broke. And so I was trying to figure out why my hedges were all brown. And when I realized what it was, like, oh, my God, now I have to do my own saltwater remediation, which I did. But, <laughs> but he, he upset the Spartans. They came in. They sacked his place and salted <laughs> right. salt, the Salted his, yeah. Salted his plants. Yeah, but, but, Blake, so y'all deal with the salts, too, that comes up in the cuttings. We do. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's handled by one of those three ways in which I, I discussed. You know, if, if water can't go through the material to begin with, it can't pick the, the salt up to take it back out. So that's, so I want to get kind of into your process. So the mud goes down the hole in the drill string. Mm-hmm. Um, it hits bottom hole and it starts coming up with all the cuttings. So you've got synthetic based mud, mm-hmm. you've got whatever hydrocarbons are down in the, in the formation, in the formation itself. Um, so now you've got the cuttings up on surface with everything, the SBM and everything else that's in there. When do you get involved and what, what the, what process is that? So it comes back to the shaker house. When do you step in? Typically, after it goes through the solids control is when we get involved. It goes desander, desilter, through the dryers, yeah, yeah, and, then, mean, and then it becomes your Primary, secondary shakers, your desander, desilter, and then your uh, centrifuge, and then, then your vertical dryers. At that point, we can become involved, or whoever is handling the, uh, the vertical dryers can partially add, add some type of uh, chemical agent to it to just be able to stack the material out. And from a legal standpoint, as far as this being hazardous material, do you take ownership of it at that point, or are you just involved in the process? We're just involved in the process. We do not take ownership of it. That is one of the things that we actually talk to about with our customer, because it's incredibly important for everybody to realize that that's, that's really a gray area, who owns the who owns the cuttings. An important and gray area, though. It's a very important gray area, because what winds up happening potentially down the road, if there is a problem... Clearly, the people who are the, the, the quote-unquote principally responsible party by the government to clean it up are going to be the people who have the deepest pockets. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> you know, the deepest pockets in this situation is an oil and gas company. Mm-hmm. And so it's important from their perspective to be able to look at their, their waste stream and make sure they're minimizing future liability. And one of the ways you do that is by making sure that your waste is not commingled with somebody else's waste. So... Since everything that we do is out in the field on their site, we go to them to, to actually perform the process. Their waste, we never commingle with anybody else's waste, so only their waste is utilized to build their next pad or road. And that means that their liability is dramatically reduced because they're not taking on anybody else's liability from, say, another oil company. God, I never would have thought this would have went to a way to mitigate risk from a, a liability point of view. It makes total sense. It's um, and you're right. It's it's whoever has the deepest pockets is usually the first person that's on the hook, and if I'm not mistaken, even when they dispose of it, don't they still have liability? Isn't it still their waste? They do. Yeah, and that that's been shown repeatedly uh, over and over from a federal perspective, when people take things some uh, take things into a a commingled state like a landfill or something. You know, landfills oftentimes do a fantastic job of making sure that they don't take in anything that they shouldn't be taking in. But let's say that. You have some uh, uh, landfill operator that, that might be smaller and, and, and they took something in accidentally. Um, if they're not very large and it was, a say, a hazardous situation, which drill cuttings are not, uh, but say it was, somebody had to go in and clean it up, then the really the people who have the deepest pockets are going to clean that situation up. And that's, a, that, that's just a terrible place to be for, for an oil and gas company. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it was really... A, I was thinking about this while you were talking through that. This really kind of gives the operating the operator 
the drilling contractor, it gives them clear delineation between who has responsibility and who doesn't. And that's, that's worth a fortune right there, just knowing that there is no gray area. That's exactly right. Yeah. Knowing that I either have my ducks in a row or I don't have my ducks in a row, but I know. And, you know, we, we take, and as, as any good um, environmental technology would, we test them each, each uh, well's waste, we test up front, we know what's in it. Then we bench scale that uh, before we actually go do the job, and then we test it at the end and utilize a third party to verify the results and provide that back to the operator. So from the operator's perspective, you know that your waste has not been commingled with anybody else, and you also know what the end result is of that waste. So let's say that somebody later claimed that you had uh, added um, a pesticide to your drilling fluid, so to speak, and you knew that you had tested for that up front and it wasn't even there to begin with, that's probably going to be on the landowner, not on you. Right, right. And so when you first start going down this route, because, you know, our industry is a bit old-fashioned. We don't like new stuff. Um, Was it hard to talk to operators about this? Because, I mean, this had to be like something that they've never heard of before. That's a great point, Mark, and, and still is to this day. I would tell you that... You know, as not not just with oil and gas, but oil and gas does have a reputation for that. Uh, but anytime somebody brings something new to the market, it is difficult for people to get past what they've been doing, and um, especially when you start talking about things that have liability associated with them. But in this case, when you you know talk about taking something that was a waste stream and you're going to go build a a pad on that you're going to drill a million dollar plus well on multi-million dollar hole in the ground in people are very skeptical about that so you have to be able to overcome that i'll never forget one of the funniest stories that i've had in the oil field uh this was several years ago uh when we were just first starting out I, i had a drilling manager look at me and he said you know, I'm going to tell you something, son. He said, you either really know what you're doing or you're crazy. <laughs> and I just, uh, I kind of want to wind up seeing what it is, so I'm going to let you do it. <laughs> and then, you know, we keep talking about drilling pads, but surely that can't be the only thing you can do with it, with these cleanup cuttings. It's not. Lease roads, and, and really we find that the best bang for the buck, so to speak, for the oil and gas operator is building lease roads for them. Because if you think about it, as much of a pounding as a drilling pad receives during drilling, let's say you're going to drill 60 days. You're on that 60 days, frack crew comes in, they're in and they're out, and then, you know, other than a workover rig periodically coming in, really the only thing that that, that pad receives uh, maybe for a while is, um, you know, produced water being taken off of it. Uh, but what really receives the majority uh, of the damage or um, traffic is going to be the lease road that serves multiple wells. Yeah, of course. And since we're building something to a civil engineering spec, um, that's not, it's designed to be able to go meet whatever needs it, the demand is going to have. So in other words, if you tell me that it's a lease road going to a single well, we're going to design that differently than if it's a lease road that serves 50 wells right because you're going to have a a very different approach in what's going to happen that has real impact for dollars for the oil and gas company because they don't have to go back in and build that road as often as they did and they got to build it with their own material rather than having to pay to get it hauled off for disposal 
Yeah, and we talked about this at lunch, and I thought this was fascinating. What is the size? What is the scope of these drilling cuttings? I mean, this is way, way bigger than I would have possibly imagined. If you look at 2014, you know, which clearly was a, a, a banner year for the oil and gas before the price declined, it's estimated that approximately 392 million barrels of drilling waste were generated. That includes both liquid and solid. If you assume 50% liquid, 50% solid, um, you have, uh, and you turn that into tons, you'd have about 50 million tons that were solids or cuttings, drilled cuttings, and you have about 50 million tons that would be uh, liquid. The, um, as a comparison, in 2005, the American Coal Ash Association assumed or estimated that uh, about 71 million tons of coal ash were produced in the United States. So you're talking about something that is a fairly large uh, waste stream, and as uh, the American Petroleum Institute shows, that is drilled cuttings are the largest um, solid waste generated by upstream oil and gas. Yeah, and so the other thing that we talked about, and and if our audience doesn't know this, the way it works when you drill a conventional reservoir is really radically different the way it is when you drill uh, in the shell place, and especially when you go in production. So a conventional reservoir, you may produce for, for 30, 40, 50 years, but a shell well only lasts a while, and you got to punch in a holding ground, which means there's going to be this constant need to get rid of these, these um, the, the um, shavings, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a never-ending problem that you now have a solution for, which is just the fact you can build roads, your own roads from your own rock cuttings is, is just, let's be... You know, Mark, I'll tell you something really interesting about that. We can also build, you know, like county roads out of the material. Um, And we've had to go and get permits in in the majority of states we operate. Some states we can operate by rule, but in the states where we've had to get permits, with county commissioner approval, we can build county roads out of the stuff. And it would make great county roads. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's a fantastic material if treated properly. We really never had operators want to do that. And the reason they didn't want to do that is because they realized the value of the material they were generating. Oh, <laughs> they didn't want to give it away. They want it for themselves. Yeah. But are they, are they selling it? They, that was going to be my next question. Are they, are, they're using it for as much as they can, but are they, are they monetizing it in any way? No. What they, what they wind up doing is you need multiple wells to go build. Let's assume you're building drilling pads. You know, a pad may be 400 by 400. With the typical amount of cuttings generated by by well, uh, it'll take multiple wells to go build an X pad. So, um, you, an operator really is consuming more than they would be able to, you know, sell in excess. Okay. It's it's really a it's an amazing uh, like almost anything as we talked about at lunch like almost anything that uh, you're able to figure out a, a reuse value for. Um, there's there's something that the operators are generating that for years they thought was worthless, didn't have any value to it, uh, but it, it does if you treat it properly. Now, there are ways that it's not treated properly, uh, and, and it's called, people call it recycling. The EPA has a definition for that, sham recycling. I was going to ask you, so you've got a white paper on your website about sham recycling. Can you go into a little bit about what uh, the EPA considers sham recycling? Well, when you have the contaminants that are in drilled cuttings, um, you know one of the ways that you you deal with with a contaminant um, is to dilute it. That's the whole principle behind land spreading. 
Um, you dilute something down, and so therefore it's not a concern anymore. You can do that when you're trying to, to generate something as a recycled material, and what, what winds up happening is you're blowing the volume way up just to try to dilute back so that it doesn't cause any harm to the environment. Well, that's really not a recycling method. And if you look at the legal definition or, or the definition, I'll say, by the EPA, that kind of fits sham recycling that you're really adding way more to it than what's actually necessary or what would be beneficial if it was truly a material that could be recycled. Basically creating more waste so the waste isn't as bad right. when it gets into the environment. Okay, That's right, Patrick. It's a, it's a nice way to manipulate the system. There. That is a nice way to manipulate the system. And at the end of the day, really what's happening, going to happen in that setting, even you know, if the operator uh, utilized that for themselves, since they're still, and we never claim we're taking away liability, the operator really has bought more material in the end than what they ever, ever generated. And that's the last thing you want to do. So while we're still on, on the topic of the EPA, how do the regulators view this from it comes out of the ground as cutting, which mm-hmm. is waste, and you're turning it into a usable, let's call it building material? Where is the demarcation from when it becomes waste in the eyes of the regulators to when it becomes a building material that now you're introducing back to the environment, which is a pad side or a road? It, it, it's the definition occurs when you've met the criteria laid out in the permits, which typically go along the lines of unconfined compressive strength, leachability, and then hydraulic conductivity. Now, the exact time of when that occurs can be once you've mixed the material for it to occur. What I mean by that is, uh, not, not trying to be cryptic there, but when you look at, say, concrete, when you mix all the ingredients to get together for concrete, which would be cement, sand, water, and you put that in, in a uh, concrete truck and you take it to a site, you know, it really is concrete when you've put it in the, in the truck. It's just not set in the form yet. So that's, that's really the, the, the line. It's going to meet that place or those final parameters of unconfined compressive strength and hydraulic conductivity and leachability once you get the mix set. Is it a... I'm not even going to go down down that route. But, uh, no, that's, <laughs> okay. that's good. I was, I was, yeah, I was just wondering if they if they give you a hard time about about the documentation of. I can see a regulator coming back and wanting to be very specific about when it turns from one to the other because now you're. That, that's typically set out in our permits, but at the same time, as far as the documentation goes, you know what they're really looking for from our perspective is that we have tested the material up front. We know what's in the material. And then at the end, we've tested it again and sent that to a third party that's not us so that we can send that back into the state so that they have a record of where the material is and, and you know, what the final result was. And, you know, since we also send that to the operator, that's the operator gets the benefit of that as well. Yeah, so I totally get what you're doing, which I think is awesome. A different way to look at recycling cuttings, take some of waste and turn it to a product. But I'm curious, your company, do y'all just do the – uh, environmental recycling part, or have you actually now gotten a civil construction because you're building roads and pads? We do both. Do y'all really? We do both, but we only we only do the construction aspect of it with cuttings. Even though we could go and build, I, I, I'm so proud of our our crews and our our guys and how what their capabilities are, and and we have uh, licensed professional engineers on staff that that deal with all of this, but we take the samples, we have the samples analyzed initially, we have our own lab where we do bench scale work, 
and test different designs that are the most economical, but then going and actually doing the, the work, which is such a unique aspect regardless of whether you're in the oil field or not. I mean, that, that concept is called design-build, and a lot of the large engineering firms do that design-build concept, and that's a concept that, that we offer in the oil field, and it provides such efficiency in the way that we are able to get something done because we do it over and over and over. And you've gotten good at it. We've gotten very good at it. Yeah. So that then begs me a question. If you're an operator out there, when should they engage with you? Now it sort of sounds like they should engage with you when they're thinking about getting ready to drill a well. They should. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they really should because there are ways to optimize how you deal with the cuttings, as you were talking about earlier, Patrick. When do we take over? There's ways to optimize the most profitable form of dealing with your cuttings up front. Now, some companies, you know, have internal policies. They want them dealt with a certain way before we would get to that. Um, But other companies, as long as it meets a final engineered uh, approach that would uh, not be harmful to the environment, they're they're happy to entertain anything. So having those discussions up front is very important. Yeah. We're getting kind of close in our time, so I'm going to start winding the show down a little bit. Uh, But this is our typical segment where we have the Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week. And you have a safety tip for us. I do. Uh, We started years ago. Every time, every day, we're out doing a job before we start. Like most companies, we do a job site analysis. And what we began to do was instead of having the supervisor, the crew supervisor, do the same job site analysis every day or that person lead it, we began to have different people in the crew do it so you rotate doing it and that way everybody gets a hand a part in being able to talk about safety and realizing that they might need to emphasize something different for the day so that everybody's a part of that and not just one person doing it and somebody getting bored and not listening. I'll tell you Mark I love the safety tip because I've seen it done a number of different ways you'll have the most senior guy on the job just read through the JSA this is the job we're going to do and you've got the junior guys that may not completely understand that won't say a word. Yep. But now you're giving it to them. You lead it. I've seen people pass around the procedure. A different person's going to read a different step. I've seen them just give it to the most junior. Getting those people involved, even when you think, oh, no, I'm I'm asking questions. I want them to raise their hand. They're not doing it unless you kind of force that. So I love that safety tip. And, and you know what, what I've really found interesting, Patrick, is when somebody from the office shows up and they've got to participate in that, and they're, they're the one that has to be able to lead it. <laughs> and you all of a sudden see the realization of, the things that, that you've talked about in the office are real. That's what's actually happening. And well, it's funny. They get nervous, too, because they they're, do. they're not doing that job every day. And now they have to try and remember I, 20 years ago when I was actually out here roughnecking. This is what I was having to worry about. So you see a little bit of nervousness when they're reading through the procedures, even though they're you know leading the company on a day-to-day basis. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and what a great uh, safety tip there. So now it's time for our bag winner. Patrick, you could take care of that. And this week's winner of the Red Wing Offshore Bag is... Danny Boyle. Danny's an analyst at Devon Energy. Congratulations, Danny. Your Red Wing bag is on its way. Blake, see the bag behind me? I see it. It's in super high demand. That's the Red Wing offshore bag. We give away one a week. Um, it's really easy. All you do is go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put in your information. We draw one lucky winner a week. Uh, no purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. And audience, it's for you too. Yeah, just go ahead. It's and a great got, looking and bag. And so I've got to stop you right there, bag. Uh, Mark. Keith Linton, who won our bag a week or two ago, this is going to be a while back, but he uh, he commented on LinkedIn, say he got his bags, really nice bag, and love the show. So if you get your bag, you know we want to reach out, hit us up on LinkedIn or the 
oilandgashse.com. Hey, you know what they should do, Patrick? They should take a picture with their bag and send yeah. it to us. That'd be good, yeah, if we get people with their with their Red Wing bags. And if you're going out to a rig, they even better. So that's an offshore bag? It's crazy. People have offered us ridiculous amounts of money for that, for that cash for that bag. Well, we, I didn't tell you this, Mark, but I was admiring it earlier <laughs> before we started. Well, there's only one way to get it. Go to redwingshoes.com okay. forward slash podcast. Um, Mark's is a lot cleaner than mine. I won mine when I was still working offshore. It's got a little more <laughs> dirty grease on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Another thing that uh, audience you should look at doing is uh, go check out a LinkedIn group. It's uh, OGGN. It's the sister for this show, for our other shows, for all our future shows. Um, it's I've seen people uh, share contacts. I've seen people do copyright for each other. It's, it's our little family that's going on out there. Also, stay tuned. OGGN websites get a refresh. We're gonna turn it into a magazine style, online magazine style. So if you have a company out there and you want some exposure to our audience, we will, what we're going to do is we're going to allow other people to put content on the OGGN website. Uh, we prefer video, but uh, reach out to me. Um, I'll talk you through the process. This way you get exposure to our audience and we get to watch some really cool stuff. And, and we're looking for things that are noteworthy. They're news-rated tips, real video of somebody out there drilling, uh, you know, guys out there putting pipelines together, whatever. So um, that's coming. It should be here about the next month. Then if you like the show... Please give us a review. It takes all of five minutes. Go to iTunes. Uh, Patrick just let me know that you can finally do it from your iPhone, or he just figured out how to do it from iPhone. <laughs> it's hidden. It, it is not easy to find, but it is in your iPhone. Yeah. And then if you like the show, can you do me a favor? Can you share this? Share it on your social. Send it all company email. You know, just uh, direct everybody to oilandgashse.com, which is our website. We would appreciate that. And then, or if you're a guest on our show, make all your employees give us a review. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll pass that along. I definitely will do that. Patrick. That was a good one, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. We should have started that one a long time ago. Uh, we've had some big companies on here, man. We'd have hundreds of thousands. You would have a lot. Yeah, you would have a lot. And then uh, we have to give a big thanks to our on the road sponsor. You know, we travel a good bit. We go to all these conferences and expos, and they invite us there as press, but there's still costs involved in getting us out there. And our on the road sponsors are the ones that make that happen. So, Total Land, the world's most advanced field land management system, big shout out to them. They are literally the landman's virtual office. And then Lee Heck Harrison, global experts in talent management. They help oil and gas companies deal with the complexity of leadership and workforce transformation. So, Patrick will stick some links in the show notes. Go check those companies out. The great supporters of the show. And then if you have a trade association, a company event, a conference, if you're a school, if you want us to come out and do your safety meeting, (laughs) reach out to Patrick and I. We'd love to do that sort of stuff. We'd be happy to share the details. Um, Okay. Did we cover? Oh, one thing I want to cover. So I had actually a new listener reach out to me actually on LinkedIn. And it was really cool uh, how much value is actually a she got from listening to HSE. She's starting her career at HSE with a large major operator and she loves the show. So I just want to give a big shout out to all our new listeners out there. We thank you for listening. For all of our existing listeners, you what makes the show possible. Without you, it'd be Patrick and I talking to ourselves and that would be kind of scary. So big thank you for everybody out there that's listening and like I said, it's um, it's um, we're growing and it's good stuff. The network yeah. as a whole. Is I, I got the same. I got some good feedback on the three part series we did with Knowledge Vine a while back on how actionable it was. So if there's anything that y'all want us to talk about specifically, send us an email, reach out to us on LinkedIn, and let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, and we're trying to make it better every day. Yeah. Uh, speaking of making a better day, Patrick, that's about it, right? Yeah, I think that's it for us today. All right. So folks, oh wait, no, no, we messed up. Yeah. Yeah, no, I messed up actually. Oh. So Blake, if people want to learn more about you and your company, where should they go? Scottenergy.com. Okay. And I guess LinkedIn if they want to learn a bit more about you? Yes. Yeah. So Patrick, make sure we stick links for both of those. There's also a LinkedIn for the company, Scott Energy. So 
Okay. We'll put all those links in the show notes, and I'm going to specifically link to that white paper you have there on sham recycling. So it's a term I had never heard before, if anybody's interested about that. Appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, good, useful, valuable information for free. We could have charged you for it, but we didn't. <laughs> all right, so you ready to get out of here, Patrick? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. Several years ago in South Louisiana, we were working for an operator, and we were digging a pit. And um, one of the local contractors said, you can't do that here. And we said, why, why can't you do that? Expecting some type of regulatory something, uh, information we hadn't heard. And he goes, well, you're between two rivers. Our, our crew supervisor walked off and looked at me, and he goes, aren't you always between two rivers? <laughs> or at least between a river and an ocean? <laughs> so. That's too funny.